It is another blessed opportunity and, yea, even a privilege we've been given as the shades of Eve gather about us to assemble for the express purpose in which you and I are currently engaged. The songs that we've sung together, the prayer in which we have engaged also together, the opportunity to make fellowship one with another also by virtue of a time like this one brings our attention to, again, an opportunity to give some portion and thought to the Word of God tonight. You may have noticed from the reading a moment ago as that was read in our hearing, taken from the 23rd chapter of Acts, we will in fact this evening cast a spotlight on the first verse really of that chapter and use it in order to assist us in a study of the concept of conscience. As we do that, we will find a number of distinctions between the modern views on that subject and that which we find embedded in the thoroughness of the Word of God. I would invite you then to revisit that passage as we'll return and consider it a bit later in, in due course this evening. For right now, perhaps these opening words, though, would be certainly appropriate. We know this past week, as we were reading in the book of Acts, we found again that last several chapters reminding us of the labors of the Apostle Paul as he himself was taken prisoner and ultimately found his way on voyage ultimately to Rome. During the course of those chapters, we found one who nonetheless had the fire of the Lord burning within him as he strove to help others see the blessed light of truth, reminding them of their obligation before the God of heaven. And at times, that even was the case relative to noteworthy leaders such as Felix and Festus and even Agrippa. Here were individuals who could effect Paul's release, and yet he had the nerve, the courage, and yea, the boldness to put them on trial, if you please, before judgment with God. Maybe those last thoughts help us appreciate then when Paul spoke about conscience. It truly was a magnificent thing for him. And yet that's the very word he used in Acts 23 verse 1. The word conscience by itself brings to your mind and mine thoughts that are rather profound. Thoughts that continue to this day to be greatly interesting not only to you and me, but yea, even psychological professionals are greatly intrigued by the thought of conscience. Perhaps in fairness, what role does conscience play in relation to things like judgment? Is there any sin related to the matter of conscience? Tonight we shall investigate all of that in due course. The very bottom statement then on that slide. Surely we might wish a definition. Biblically, what does one mean when one speaks of that which is the conscience of man? We shall define it almost immediately as we begin the lesson. But in so doing, let's begin to appreciate some of the things that it brings before us. The conscience of man, the concept that relates to it. You and I perhaps often are greatly agitated when we see the news and perhaps there's an individual who has taken a number of lives and seems to have no remorse. There are people seemingly who give no thought to taking the life of another. They have no bothersome thoughts about stealing from another, harming another, in some way removing the thoughts that attach to another. It seems as though there are some for whom that kind of thing does not offer any bothersome thoughts. No disturbing characteristics. Criminals often, as you and I, appreciate them in that way. You and I seemingly see in them those whose conscience operates in a very different way than yours and mine. 
You and I couldn't kill someone without it bothering us. We couldn't steal from them without, again, it agitating us. But it seems though it doesn't bother them. There are even those who labor under the illusion of service to God, but they do so incorrectly and improperly. Their worship is unacceptable, and yet their consciousness is never bothered. They seemingly are happy. Many of them are jovial and joyous. They are not agitated or bothered by any element of consciousness. Maybe all of that leads us to some of those next ideas. When you and I think about the attribute of consciousness, this concept of conscience, isn't it still true? Sometimes you and I hear the statement, let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience? That statement, as you and I may have heard it, there perhaps should be warnings attached to a thought like that one. And again, we should investigate what does the Bible have to say about that. All of that brings us to here. I found it intriguing that the Bible uses this word, conscience, 32 times. And every one of them is in the New Testament. Every one of them is found in that covenant that attaches to the blessed better covenant. It's almost as if the dimness of the Old Testament wasn't certain to in fact unveil that which was the brightness and the fullness of understanding of that which is the conscious. No wonder as you and I think about those 32 occurrences in the New Testament. We shall in fact have tonight the opportunity to visit a few of them. In so doing, notice immediately the Greek word that's translated in those 32 places. It is this word, synodesis, and it literally has reference to the following, that which distinguishes between what is morally good and bad. That attribute, that characteristic that allows a discernment, a decision, a distinguishing characteristic relative to what would occupy the station of moral goodness and that which is not morally good. We might even pause for just a moment and comment as to the great blessing of God's creation, equipping people, men and women, boys and girls, with an internal attribute like that, something that is able to give us a thought about what does satisfy and what does not. Amazing, that internal characteristic, isn't it? You might appreciate immediately then if you and I were asked to define, to characterize this issue we're discussing, we might say it like this. This which is a person's conscience. It is nothing more than that part of the person that analyzes his or her actions, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, analyzes them and makes a determination as to whether or not they're in agreement with his judgment. That's what the conscience is. It is that which analyzes. It is that which again draws a conclusion based on the standard of that person's judgment. Therein lies then a key element that distinguishes it from what many in our world are of an opinion to assert. Perhaps the very last statement. When you and I think then about the verdict rendered by that consciousness, the verdict rendered by this conscience... Even Romans 2.15 gives us apparently only two possibilities. In that masterful piece in which Paul was discussing the Gentiles, highlighting the fact that despite what they did not have, namely the law, 
They were never beneath the law of Moses. They did not have it. God didn't give it to them. Paul nonetheless says many of them did what the law required despite the fact they never were given that law. And thus Paul made comment that their conscience did one of two things. It either accused them or it excused them. You may notice immediately the two possibilities. One's conscious might accuse him, bothering him or disturbing him by virtue of the fact he has acted inappropriately with respect to his judgment. He's done what he knew he shouldn't have done. He has said what he knew he ought not to have said. Or perhaps he allowed thoughts to cross his mind that were unwholesome and he knew it. In such a case, that person's conscience may well then accuse him. But on the other hand, what if it excuses him? To use the very word that Paul asserted, that means he has acted in a way that in his judgment was in accordance to that judgment, and therefore his conscience offered no refrain. It offered no bother. Those two possibilities, either to accuse or to excuse, allow us finally to develop the thought more thoroughly like this. Let's then set before us those two circumstances. Suppose that an individual, as you'll see at the very top of that slide, all acts, behaves, conducts himself in a way that is in concert with his judgment. Now you may pause to observe at this point we are saying nothing about his judgment. His judgment may well be wrong. His judgment may well be rather ignorant. It may be unfounded. It may be wholly unsatisfactory and inadequate. For the moment, that's beside the point. If he acts according to what that judgment dictates, however faulty it may be, then his conscience will offer to him no difficulty or problem. In fact, as you develop that thought with me, how often do you and I find that resting within the pages of Holy Scripture? This text in Acts 23 is perhaps Exhibit A. Consider the Apostle Paul, earlier in life, of course, known as that gentleman who was Saul. But you and I remember his own descriptions of his lot in life and the concourse that he had chosen. Saul was a man who himself was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He himself, by his own lips, could say, Touching the law, I am a Pharisee, Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. As Paul continued that dissertation in that place, he even pointed out that he had been able to live out of the very tribe of Benjamin. He was sufficiently knowledgeable that he knew in terms of lineage back through the centuries of time, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. As you and I give thought to that nature of Paul, he continued, he said, I persecuted the church. You and I know well that attribute of Paul's life. Here was one who in fact had in his possession letters whereby he could imprison those that were Christians. Not that they had offended Roman law in any way. Not that they had been criminals by judgment of Caesar in any fashion. They were merely those who adopted the policies of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they shunned or turned from that old law of Moses. And that was more than, of course, Paul could support. While at that point in his life, he was an ardent defender of Judaism, so much so he was willing to put people to death if they denied it. 
And thus he had in his possession letters that allowed him to go to the city of Damascus, one of the most ancient cities in the world. And there he could imprison those, both men and women, that were simply Christians. To borrow the words of this text in Acts 23.1, Paul said, My conscience didn't bother me in the slightest. I have lived in all good conscience until this very day. Paul thus made a description. While during that time when he was persecuting Christians, his conscience didn't offer him any problem. He thought by virtue of his judgment he was doing what he ought to have been doing. And therefore, we appreciate about the nature of conscience. Furthermore, you notice as Paul continued that dramatic statement, we remember that a colossal event happened on the road to Damascus. While headed to that destination, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him. We remember that three days later when he arrived at the city of Damascus, that, a, that gentleman named Ananias came to him, entered into conversation with him, and baptized him that very day. We notice what a change was wrought. Might we also comment that this same Saul, who of course had been so powerfully able to influence and persecute the cause of Christ, it's also true in Acts chapter 7 and 8, that he held the clothes of some who stoned Stephen to death. Here was one, and it would appear from his own words in Acts 26, that Paul never ever forgot what Stephen did. He never ever forgot the faithfulness of that martyr known as Stephen. It would appear that his faithfulness, his courage, his bravery, his words of peacefulness and comfort, they forever rested on the mind of Saul. But you'll notice he still could honestly say, I lived in all good conscience. The concept then of conscience takes us to Paul's own words in the very next chapter in Acts 24, 16. The comment there so powerfully asserted, Paul said, my conscience is void of all offense. It had been such that Paul wasn't bothered. Maybe as you and I develop that more interestingly, we can now appreciate some of those other statements found in the New Testament. In regard to the qualifications of a deacon found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, isn't it rather fascinating that one of the statements therein found is this one, that this particular person, this man, if he is to be a qualified deacon, it is such that he must hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. To hold the mystery of the faith, certainly that would indicate that this person needs to be of a wholesome characteristic in which his conscience is able with clarity and clearness to not be of bothersome or disturbed character. One of the qualifications then speaks volumes about that, doesn't it? Isn't it rather fascinating even beyond that? We're allowed then to question or consider this statement. Suppose a person does then act in a way that is condemned by his judgment. Suppose an individual does proceed to act in some fashion whether it be by word or by deed, perhaps even again by thought, and that is not in favorable agreement to what His judgment is. Now is where the conscience steps in. 
Now it's where we find that conscience proceeds to bother, to disturb. Maybe it leads to restlessness, maybe to sleeplessness, maybe it leads to appetite that's not as strong as it otherwise might have been. Maybe we have each at one time or another been in a situation where either we have witnessed it in others or we have even felt it ourselves. The thought of a conscience that has been bothered. Consider this with me. What about Paul's usage of that concept in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 12? On that occasion, as Paul gave that discussion about the nature of eating meat that had been offered to idols, he rather interestingly phrased it that there are some who, by virtue of their weak conscience, would in fact be bothered or at least be emboldened to become weaker by that which they have witnessed. Might we each take note that here is an instance when Paul, even in light of that, made reference to a weak conscience. Would your conscience or mine be weak? I might ask us to consider what are the consequences of having one that's weak. Should you and I strive to have it stronger? Ought that be a motivation, an incentive for you and for me? Consider this also. What about those passages described at the bottom of that slide? Those circumstances found in Titus 1.15 as well as Hebrews 10 verse 22. Again, some very interesting adjectives used to describe them. On the one hand is a defiled conscience. Now that seems to speak volumes about the nature of our subject tonight, doesn't it? When a person's conscience is defiled, you know then you've done that which your judgment said ought not be done. You've gone where your judgment affirmed ought not to have been visited. You've spoken what shouldn't have been said. That kind of situation is again one where perhaps these very adjectives are being utilized. And doesn't it challenge all of us in that we should strive not to have a defiled or an evil conscience, but rather one that is pure as we noted a moment ago in 1 Timothy 3 verses 9 and following. That kind of description and that kind of consideration maybe transitions us to this next one as well. The nature of this subject before us. It seems as if there is another passage that does in fact say a great deal about this topic. It's found in the opening verses of 1 Timothy 4. It is there that as Paul makes a discussion about that which would characterize the choices and the way of life of many, and he proceeds to describe some whose conscience was seared with a hot iron. That literally means branded as to be unfeeling. Here were some who had arrived past the point of feeling. Their judgment was so askew and their conscience was so in line of that askewness that they're past feeling anymore. That sounds a bit like, again, some who you and I may have seen on the nightly news. Here it's used in a religious context in which some religiously are as if they're branded with a hot iron past the point of feeling. They're unwilling to be instructed. They're unwilling to be touched with the thoroughness and the fervor of truth. They are willing to go it alone on their personal judgment despite the folly and faultiness that goes with it. That, of course, is an eternal tragedy, isn't it? Amazing, isn't it? That as Paul references all of these points of view with respect to it, 
maybe this other statement then is a fair summary of some of what we've seen so far tonight. The statement that the conscious is such that it truly monitors that which is the deeds, thoughts, and actions of a person to determine whether they're in light of and in harmony with that individual's judgment. So far, one more time, we seemingly have found the careful need to describe then the judgment of the person. For the conscious will only render a verdict as closely related to truth as that person's judgment has been instructed. Perhaps in fairness, that last thought then is in order. It is true that we must be mindful that even matters touching this issue of the conscious will come before us as we think about some aspects of judgment. Paul uses it in that very light in Romans 13 as well as again in Romans 14, doesn't he? There, when there are matters that are expedient in nature, that is to say the hard-fought and stern and strict matter of truth hasn't been vouchsafed on those matters, you and I are left in such a way we must render that judgment. Even in those cases, we're warned for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Doesn't that point out to us then, we must be cautious and mighty careful. If a particular matter is a troubling thing to a well-trained conscious and one that is well instructed, that then will mean we'll have to give an account for violation of it. Perhaps that violation and that aspect would lead to this section of the lesson that I would like us to begin like this. In the broadest consideration, apart from that comment we just made, the conscious does not determine what's wrong and right. It only determines a person's actions in correspondence to his judgment. Ultimate wrong and right rests upon a far stronger foundation than that. A foundation that you and I might develop like this. That wonderful, that powerful, that truthful Word of God. Therein we find that which must be utilized to instruct and to train the judgment of a person. No wonder you and I see passages in which Paul himself could say, as he did in Romans chapter 7, passages where he said, I did not know sin until I learned by the revelation of God in the law. Paul stated, didn't he then, that I learned what was wrong and right, not because my conscience told me so, but because the instruction of the Word of God had dictated that conclusion. In 1 John 3, verse 4, what, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Again, in its broadest consideration, we notice then the judgment must be thoroughly equipped and trained as it relates to the revelation of the Word of God. For that's what, of course, shall determine wrong and right. Maybe one final passage along that line, that famous text in 2 Timothy 2. In the 15th verse of that chapter, Paul highlighted this statement, "...study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." That statement to study, that is to say to give diligence. Paul, to what end? To show thyself approved unto God. By what mechanism? Handling aright the word of truth. When you and I handle this correctly, 
and allow it to distill within our heart and our mind and thus dictate that which is the revealed will of God relative to right and wrong, appropriateness or unsatisfactoriness, we then know our conscience can be trained to bother us when again our actions are not in correspondence to this. We again begin to see the rather noteworthy point, do we not? The conscience of many people isn't trained by this book. It's trained by culture. It's trained by political correctness. It's trained by that which seems to be the norm of that which is society. It's trained by what granddad and grandmom may have said. Maybe it's in fact trained and set forth by a so-called pastor or other religious individual. Every one of those instances is different from the conclusion you and I reached just a moment ago. We notice then if a conscience is trained by those kinds of sources, if a judgment, I should say, is set by them, then a conscience will then not throw up red flags of bothersome nature when a person violates this book. And therein lies the critical matter, isn't it? No wonder Paul could say, I have lived in all good conscience until this day, until that moment in time, from the time he had grown to have the capability of understanding relative to wrong and right, from that moment into the very reading of Acts 23.1, Paul's conscience was clear. But he had helped put Stephen to death. He had assisted in the persecution of untold numbers of others. He had in fact striven to tear apart the very church of our Lord and he gave no consideration of faithfulness relative to Jesus. We begin to see again... No wonder the individuals, many of whom we know today in our world, are such that their conscience is no bother to them, for their judgment is so improperly trained. Their judgment is so ill-equipped. Its foundation is so inappropriate. Perhaps in light of that, we come to notice these verdicts then. We shouldn't be too alarmed then when their conscience does not throw up any verdict of accusation. It excuses them because they ignorantly know no different. But may we be quick to say that offers no excuse for the day of judgment, not in the slightest. How often do we find statements in which we find Revelation twenty two twelve On the day of judgment, each one shall give account for the deeds done in his body. There is no clause that excuses those whose judgment was ungodly. There's no clause to excuse those who, in fact, had lived under the banner of a different authority, or so they thought. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates anything different than this. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-9. through 9. He is returning with an element of vengeance, returning with the holy angels prepared to render the verdict of sentence upon those for whatever the reason had not obeyed the gospel. And you may notice that's not just those who fail to obey it initially. They may well have obeyed it initially, but then through the course of life, maybe they allowed other training to bend their will to what it ought not to have been. 
And even in that situation, in, the, in, in that case, their disobedience will result in an eternal sentence of punishment. The alarming state continues to the next possibility. But think of it this way. Consider that individual who has allowed the Word of God to seep within their being, to direct their thinking, their attitudes, their emphases and motives of life in such a way that they have a standard of this book. Then, when their actions are such that it does not harmonize with it, you say what you know shouldn't have been said. You feel regret. You feel a sense of hollowness. It bothers you. Or you go to a place that you know no respectable Christian would go. Or you, in fact, engage in an activity that you realize as you do it, I wonder about this. Your conscience now begins to bother you. Why? Because it's been trained by the right standard and in the sense it compares that standard to your actions or mine, it now knows that the two are not in harmony. They are not congruous. And in that way, now, it leads to those feelings that you and I have described earlier. Feelings that will lead us to desire to make changes and to do differently. What ultimately happened to David? There was one who committed murder. There was one who committed adultery. There was one who encouraged drunkenness. There was one who had tremendously walked aside from the plan of God. But when Nathan brought the matter to his mind, it would appear that he was overwhelmed with guilt. He understood thoroughly and fully what he had done, and he pleaded, pleaded with the God of heaven for forgiveness. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 18. In that kind of plea, we perhaps see a man whose conscience bothered him bothered him to the point where he was wrought with that which now was the guilt of what he had done. It would appear David never ever forgot the feelings of what it was like to be distanced from God. No wonder in Psalm 32 he pronounced a blessing, verses 1 and 2, upon those whose transgressions are forgiven, those whose iniquities are cast aside. All of us as sinners can understand the blessedness of that state. On that day, we came out of the watery grave of baptism. We were clean and pure and white. Unlike that state before going into that water, we now were pure before the Lord. Perhaps as you come to those last statements, think of how they harmonize with the statements of our Lord Himself. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Lord did not mention conscience. But you and I know from our study tonight that a properly trained one can be such a valuable asset to life. It can help guide us on the narrow way that leads to life, for it will ever be there to warn us when we start to take tangents, when we start to travel the unneedful path. It's much like that sensory element of pain, isn't it? We should be thankful God's given us the sensation of pain. When you touch a hot stove you know to take your hand away. <laughs> or when you find yourself in another potentially dangerous situation, often the body has signs that warn. It's much like the conscious. Signs that warn us when we're starting to go the wrong way. Signs that warn us when things aren't harmonious with us. We should be so appreciative that God has built that into us, but we must train it. 
We must allow Him to instruct it in the way that it should go. No wonder at the bottom of that slide, we remember some explicit examples in the Old Testament in which the children of Israel allowed their conscience to be trained wrongly. Texts such as especially the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel set before the people time and again, Your father sinned. They erred from God and they taught you to do the same. And so here was a generation reared up such that they were not in tune with God because they followed what their sinful parents taught them about idolatry, about other activities, whatever that may have been. And so God sent them the prophets to try and instill within them a sense of what was truth and what was right. And far too many times they had no interest in what the prophets said. God said, I sent the prophets early rising up betimes and you wouldn't listen to them. Read Jeremiah 7 verses 25 to 28. That kind of tragedy thus showed the love of a God who wanted them to have a conscience that was properly and correctly trained, but the people wouldn't allow it to be so. You and I then have the final say on that, don't we? We can control what we allow to dictate that judgment. May we in wisdom allow it to be the Word of God so that our conscience can be a helpful and powerful guide to life. One last thought has to be that rather sobering reflection, which is the last verse of Titus chapter 1. The profession of ungodliness seen there as they themselves walked aside from the truth and Paul said their conscience didn't bother them. Why? You and I now know. The purity that was not within them had been instilled that way because of a judgment that had come from ungodliness. I hope that you and I can be thankful for the attribute of conscience and especially one that's properly trained, one that's dictated and guided by what's true and right. Can your conscience be your guide? Can it be your only guide? Surely we can say that a properly trained conscience and a judgment that is in harmony with the Word of God will allow a conscience to do its job very well. You and I have that opportunity to train ourselves accordingly and allow God to do it through His Word. And so in summary, why don't we state it like this. This subject tonight, this study of the conscience has been a study reminding us that it merely makes comparison of analysis between our actions and our judgment, our perceived standard of morality. When the two are in harmony, even if the judgment is faulty, the conscious will offer no problem. But we know that if the two are not in harmony, that conscious will bother us, it'll stir us, it'll move us to action. And I hope tonight that if you're not a faithful child of God, that you'll allow the Word of God to stir you, to move you, to bring in you a sense of urgency. So, so much so that those last two statements are certainly fair. I hope we're thankful for the attribute of the way God has made the human mind, the opportunities in it to help keep us on the way, but we must use God's Word for such a direction. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. If tonight you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, I do hope that your conscience will be stirred. I hope you'll be a bit bothered and agitated. I hope, as do our elders, that you won't be able to rest as well tonight as you otherwise could.
For in fact, we aren't promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, Proverbs 27 1. But you and I know that if all is well with our soul, our conscience can be a very soothing and comforting thing, and we can live each day in the sunlit, blessed glory of the sweetness of God's rewards and promises. If that doesn't describe you tonight, may we make this statement. It may be you have never become a Christian first, and so you're still engulfed in sin, and the devil is enjoying every moment of it. Don't allow that state of affairs to continue. Why not allow Jesus to cleanse your soul? Why not become in fellowship with Him? And why not enjoy all the communion that Christianity would set before you? If we could assist you in that way tonight, the gospel plan of salvation demands you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have begun that walk with Him at some time and at some moment, but perhaps that's a distant memory. Maybe at this point your conscience is still troubled and bothered. Actions have not been as you know they should be. The training instilled in your mind years ago has troubled you now and you know you need to make a change. I hope that you'll allow the Word of God again to work within you with freeness and to have free course. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1 and if we could help you do that by praying on your behalf tonight so that you could have a clean conscience as you leave this building, we'd be more than excited to pray with you. In fact, the angels in heaven are on the very verge of celebration if you will but come forward and let that forgiveness take place. If we could be of help to you tonight, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.